starting a three-week series today. I've given you your handout. Actually, not everybody. Christy and Matt. And I, I, you'll notice I murdered a tree just for this simple design. Um, and what we're going to be talking about is what I'm calling the three primary tasks of a Jesus-centered faith. Um, I, I had to come up with a title. It was really difficult, and that was the only thing I could think of. Um, but as you notice on your paper, the only reason I, I printed this out for you is because as I'm using these words, you know, if you didn't have something to look at, you might not know what the word is as I'm going through it. So these three words, were, each week is going to be dedicated to one of these words. These words are Koine Greek. It's what you would find in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament. Um, and, and these words have kind of traveled through time. Churches still use them in liturgical senses, not really anything that they would ever share with the congregants, but you know, this is kind of stuff that I would have been talking about in seminary. Um, and, and I'm going to use it today just because it kind of goes to the sense of what, what the meanings of these topics were back when, when Jesus was walking around in this world. Um, and, and kind of to help us understand that we've We've translated these words into English, and for some of them, they've lost a tremendous amount of meaning by how we have translated them. Um, but before I begin, before I actually get into these, into these words and into these topics, I want you to just think for a moment in your own experience, okay? And I don't want you to think about how a church, you, you were taught a church should be. I want you to think about how churches actually were in your experience, growing up as an adult, etc. And, and what would you say were the central aspects of church for you growing up? What, what was the primary function that churches engaged in? Or what, what was the primary thing that churches either conveyed to you um, what was most important in like the Christian life? Okay, like so that's like a like central point of like what the the point of Christianity was. Okay, so one that's very individualistic, right? And two, it's it's all centered in internally. It's um, acknowledging sin in the mind and asking for forgiveness, either mentally or from the heart, or however you want. But it's all individual and internal, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. What else? Uh, ritual and routine experienced where? And experienced in, through, through the sacraments, through mass, through the continuity of these experiences that were just like, it was just something that your family did when you were growing up. Okay. And a lot of repetition and prayer. Yeah. So uh, to kind of uh, condense that, um, a, a church service, essentially. Coming to a church service was the primary function. I would I would say that was probably for me too, is coming to a church service. I went to church because I had to. Yeah, but what was what in your experience, what was the, the, the central aspect of church? What what did churches do? What were they centered on? What did they 
what did they convey to you that was most important? And that doesn't even have to be... Okay, then not when you were a kid, but you were at the mission for a long time. You've gone to St. Mark's. You, you were uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox for a time. So in your adult experiences. I had a lot of relearning to do because I went to church because all my friends went to church and because I was forced to go to church. And if I didn't go to church, I wouldn't see my friends. But of course, as I grew up, I realized it was very important in my life. And right now it is probably, other than my family, it's alongside as being as important. But I had to learn it the hard Yeah, way. and so as an adult, what were the central aspects of church for you? Well, God is love. Okay, and, and where was that experienced or expressed? Through a church. I think the experience was, to be honest with you, when I married my first husband, who had at one time wanted to become an Eastern Orthodox priest, and he taught me a lot. Okay, so personal and private. All right. I was a kid when I married him, yeah. but uh, he taught me a lot. He showed me that religion was so darn important to him. And, uh, yeah, he was my first teacher, okay. a real teacher, I think. Thank you. Matt, how about you? Um, Christy said. So like, uh, I think if I had to come up with a word, I would say sanctification. Um, that the, the, the end, and again, individualistic, right? Had to be sanctified. That was the most important part was that a person had to become sanctified, mind, sexually, you know, all of it. Okay. Um, I think for me, as I said, the worship service was everything. And I think if we looked at society, at like how churches are characterized within our society, a worship service is probably the most central aspect of what church does. So the reason I'm doing this three-week series is to try to upend that idea. Um, and, and, and this comes from me looking at a lot of liberation theologians who were really combing, uh, combing the New Testament and trying to understand, you know, what's really most important. If Jesus was going to start a church, would it look anything like our church is today? And, I mean, we're talking about probably 80 years of the same theory being developed over time. And I'm calling it, again, the, the three primary tasks of a Jesus-centered um, faith. Uh, some, some scholars have added two to this. And so the three, three tasks are diakonia, kerygma, and koinonia. And then uh, some people have added to that liturgia, which is liturgy, um, 
And then, oh God, of course, because I'm talking about it, I'm blanking on the fifth one. Oh, martyria, which is the Greek word for witness. I would add witness and um, liturgia into what here is kerygma. So for me, it's three. And um, this sounds very like scholastic and very wordy because I'm using the Koine Greek here. But basically what it comes down to is, and I've got the definitions there for you, diakonia, uh, is what we translate as service in the Bible, in the New Testament. So if, you, if the, when the word diakonia pops up, uh, they, they typically translate that in English to service. As in, like, the act of service or like a church service? The act of service. Okay. Good question. Really good question. Um, kerygma is the word for proclamation, to proclaim, and you see this a lot more in uh, Acts of the Apostles and afterwards. It's a proclamation usually of like, Jesus is God, Jesus died, rose again, atoned sins, like that's the proclamation. And then the third one is koinonia, um, which is, is the word for community, but it's also translated as communion at times. Um, so, so that's the just basic definition of those three words. But talking about these three primary tasks as the primary tasks of a Jesus-centered faith, and I say Jesus-centered faith because church is a, I think it's becoming a bit antiquated. Um, I don't know if I would call unorthodox a church service, right? But I would definitely say that we're a Jesus-centered faith group, maybe. Um, and what I want to get at the heart here is that diakonia, okay, and that's the word we're going to be focusing on today, this word that's translated as service, this was always meant to be the central aspect of any church community. And when I, and as, as Karen brought up, do you mean a worship service or acts of service? It's acts of service. So when you think of what a church should be doing, its primary function should be acts of service. It should be completely rooted in the actions of that community in service. And then what we're going to talk about today is in service of what? What does that mean if we flesh it out? However, the main point here is that none of us, when I asked this opening question, said that acts of service was a central component of church growing up. And, I, and you know, being me, like progressive theologian, I would say the same thing, that the, the church that I grew up in, acts of service was definitely a part of it, but it was usually off in the periphery, and only a, a portion of people participated in that element. The rest of it was this one-hour worship service on Sunday, and that is very much the church. That's Bethania too. It's very much the, the service on Sunday. I would say Koinonia community. We do a lot of gatherings. Only since the pandemic started and we started doing the food distribution would I say that diakonia service has become a bigger part of who we are as a church. But even, even our food distribution, again, only a portion of our church participates in that. Um, and I don't think everybody would look at it as like this is the central aspect of our identity as a church. So I, I hope just by opening this up to like kind of blow your minds a little bit to say churches don't act this way. Churches have developed outside of this idea that service should be the central component of what a church should be doing. Um, and it, it's so prolific that even our church doesn't look at it this way. So diakonia service is the number one. Everything starts from right there. A, a church community starts with service, and then it spreads out to these other two words that I have, kerygma, which is proclamation, and koinonia, which is community. So 
if a church is going to be making any kind of a proclamation, uh, it can't make that proclamation until it understands itself within those acts of service. Um, most churches today, if we're going to look at these three primary tasks, uh, and based on what you all said with my opening question, most churches today would probably say their primary task as a church is this kerygma one, is proclamation. Most churches are out there proclaiming whatever they are saying is, is central to their faith. Um, I, you guys said proclaiming uh, purity or uh, 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 admitting your sins and asking for forgiveness. Um, I think for us, you know, my sermons are very much based in God loves all of us and we should go out there and love others, but it's still a very intellectual way. Um, it's not centered in the actions that we're doing as a church. So most churches are centered in the proclaiming part of these three tasks. And, and I would say they're centered in a proclaiming part to such an extent that these other two elements, service and community, almost disappear entirely. Does that make sense so far? Yes, I would Karen. argue that community still shows up, though. I would say that because of this proclamation, everybody gets together and that community is built off of it. But I would say that, yes, acts of service seems to have disappeared. But I think that community is still, people come together for community purposes. Like they might not I, agree I, with proclamation. I would challenge that. And I would say a lot of everybody shows up to hear the proclamation, so they're there together, and then they all leave as individuals. Hmm. And, and usually the message is individualistic, too. It's meant for them as individuals. Um, and that goes to like, this is meant for your personal relationship with God or personal salvation or individual morality. But, so I would challenge that one. Yeah, Matt? Um, just, I mean, kind of as an aside, I, it occurred to me I've been to, in my life, probably four or five different Christian coffee shops that have been called Koinonia. Koinonia. Yeah. Yeah. And to, and, Probably a few of them were like attached to a church, like yeah. you know. So like after after the service, then you can go hang out with your friends at the coffee shop, and that's yeah. the community. Yeah, it's this esoteric. Uh, you know, I've we've been doing this 9:30 service here at Bethania for a long mm -hmm. time. You know, decades and decades and decades. And when I started here as pastor, I was like, we got to start a second thing. And I experimented with a bunch of different stuff before I got to unorthodox. And one of them I called Koinonia, and it was like our evening uh, Bible study. And uh, I was like, it's going to be cool. It's koinonia. It's an esoteric word. We're like, come together and be together. And uh, it totally fizzled out. But it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that's used without, I think it's ironic that people probably don't really understand its, um, its intent. If you talk to me about the two concepts 20 years ago, I wouldn't have known what you're talking about. The active church versus this church where you go to hear what the priest or the minister has to say. Yeah. Because active church wasn't a concept that I knew anything about. Yeah, and there's a reason for that, which we'll talk about at some point. Steve, your hand went up. It's, <clears throat> I guess I'm thinking that in the early days, you know, in the first century or two, the communities that were following Jesus they served each other. <clears throat> and they were a community that often were interdependent because they lived in a, a village or they were in each other's lives in all sorts of ways. And 
they proclaimed what they believed to those around them who might or might not join that community. And that that dynamic was possible and embedded in that economy and in that place and that culture. And now, you know, in this congregation, um, most of the people here are financially, economically independent. And in their work lives, in their social lives, they don't necessarily run into anyone else from the congregation. So, you know, it would seem like the, the context, the matrix that we exist in is quite different from what was happening then. And I'm wondering, yeah, so I just wanted to make No, it, I mean, the idea of community would have been something taken for granted in that time because you had no option but to live in community, right? Individualism was not a concept back then. Um, the, the hallmark of the Jesus community was that it was an intentional space for the bottom up. It was the people who were on the outsides were invited in. So that's the action part. That's the service part. It was a place, uh, you read it in Acts, they pulled their resources together to take care of those in need. Um, but it was, it was a community in the face of a world that was extremely hierarchical. You know, we're very hierarchical today, but extremely hierarchical that completely depended on the patronage system. And... Um, and, and so to, to take that, that, that um, paradigm and then to create a community that was the opposite of that, to say we're going to completely get rid of this system and we're going to create an alternative community uh, starting with the outcasts coming first and it's going to be completely egalitarian and it's going to be completely focused on caring for the needs of those within our community. It would seem that in a village in... Israel or Judea at that time, you would have had a system that was culturally ancient, and that in putting in getting a, having a congregation of uh, of Jesus followers, that itself would be quite different. That it would um, women would be equal, um, people who were lepers or people who were disabled would be yeah. welcome, yeah. and that would be. Uh, a community apart and set um, in opposition to the settled Jewish traditions of that village. Yeah, and that's it right there. That's everything, what you just said. That was the whole point of the Jesus community, was that right there. And But, but then it expands into a Roman Empire where Rome was saying the same thing to everybody. You know, you are all on the outsides of us because we're Rome. And so this community spread because it had such an egalitarian message to it. And because it said uh, the last, the outcasts, the children, the women, the disabled, those are the greatest in our kingdom. It spread like wildfire. And so it, it all starts with service, though. And the service is the act of creating the community, inviting people into the community, and taking care of people within that community. You know... I went to a black church service one time. One of my stepchildren was severely disabled. Uh, uh, severely, yeah. she had Down syndrome. She had tons of things wrong. And the family we chose to place her with was a black family, which I could never tell my mother-in-law, or she would have at that cut time my yeah. tongue out. Yeah. But anyway. Um, they were telling me how much she enjoyed going to church with them. 
and I decided to experience it. And that's community. I never ever, I, I only went the one time, but I have to tell you, if you want to know about community, go to a black church service, because those people were amazing. Yep. Absolutely yep. amazing. And there's a community there that is so um, natural because there's a dependency on caring for one another, especially in a world that is uh, still so hostile towards black folks. But when you look at the black church and the civil rights movement, that was a church that was centered on service. And that service was the civil rights. And then the proclamation came from that service and the community came from that experience of fighting for equal rights. So that's a great example. And so what I'm saying here is that the point is for any church is to be centered in service first. That means your entire identity is to gather and say, what, what is the service that we should be doing within this community? That's everything. That's, where, that's the whole starting point. And then moving from there, once that happens, it is then what is our proclamation based on our experience with this service? What are we proclaiming to people about God and about Jesus and about what values are most important? And then how do we experience community within that service? How do we experience community with those of us engaged in the service? And how do we experience community with those upon whom we are serving? So, so this is a very radical um, departure from how church is today because of this centering in, uh, in, in diaconia and then understanding everything from there. And so uh, I kind of want to break down this word diaconia real quick, and I'm going to try to do this quickly so that we can talk. Um, and, and, and this is referenced in the Gospels a lot, uh, and, and it's, why this, it's, a, it's why these three primary tasks have been pulled out from uh, liberation theologians so, so well. Um, one example is John 13, and this is the story where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And I don't know how many of you remember this story well, but it's right at the end of Jesus' life before he's about to be arrested. It's at the Passover feast where we get the Last Supper from, and he decides to go and wash his disciples' feet. And Peter stands up and says, like, no, you absolutely cannot do this. And the reason Peter says this is because of this hierarchical system. Jesus as the rabbi and them as the disciples, it would have been culturally, um, I mean, inappropriate's not even a good enough word for Jesus to wash their feet because that means Jesus is below them hierarchically. And Jesus tells when Peter says, you can't do this, Jesus says, no, you don't understand. I have to do this or you're not even going to be a part of this community anymore. And then Peter says, well, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head as well and um, and Jesus says, no, the feet are going to suffice because the, the human foot, which walked on the ground, was considered to be the most profane part of the body. And so Jesus washes the disciples' feet, breaking this very staunch cultural code, and then tells them right after, if you want to be my disciple, you need to do the same exact thing that I just did for the world. And people will know you're my disciples when you love one another. And so Jesus is talking about this service element as a central component, but not just service. He's talking about a barrier-breaking service. He's talking about something that attacks hierarchy and inequality and creates an egalitarian uh, relationship by doing it. And that's why he focused solely on washing his own disciples' feet rather than telling them, like, hey, come wash my feet and then go make sure you wash everybody else's feet. Um, 
Then there's this other part in Luke, and, and Jesus says this, this is, this is when the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest among us, right? And this is a big deal. They think Jesus is going to Israel, he's the Messiah, he's going to defeat Rome and kick them out of Israel and establish this new powerful kingdom. And so the disciples are arguing, well, when this happens, which one of us is going to be on his right-hand side? Which one of us is going to be the greatest, thinking about their own power? And Jesus has this whole speech about, well, if you want to be the greatest, you need to become a slave first. If you want to be the greatest, you need to become the youngest. And he's intentionally attacking this hierarchical system that said that the youngest and slaves were at the bottom of the hierarchy. So if you truly want to be great, you need to do the opposite of what the world tells us to do. But then he has this quote in Luke 22. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the one who serves. And that word benefactor right there. Rome had this patronage system that kept everybody in line. It was like a pyramid Ponzi scheme that the entire Roman Empire employed. And, and you could look and see Rome was at the top and Rome said, we are the best and everybody below us is worse than us because we're the most powerful and we defeated you, etc. We conquered you and everyone below us is worse. But there, I mean, how do you stop everybody below them from coming together and attacking them? You create this patronage system, this one that takes everybody below Rome and says, well, if you do this for this person, then this person owes you. And then that person can take whatever benefit they get from you and then go and do favors for people below them. And then those people owe them. And it was a way for people at the bottom to get in good with the people at the top as you climb up the ladder. And so it kept everybody constantly trying to get in good with people who are more powerful than them. And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he says that the Gentiles lorded over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. He's attacking this hierarchy and he's telling his disciples, our community is going to be different. We're not going to use the patronage system. In fact, if you want to be the one at the top, then you need to make sure you're at the bottom. You need to make sure you're the one who is serving. And so he's totally transforming this community and, and making it the opposite of Rome, but he's doing it through service, through diakonia. This is going to be the hallmark of our community is how we serve the people at the bottom in such a radical way that we completely upend this system. And so, as I said at the beginning, these words, diakonia, kerygma, and koinonia, when they're translated into English, they lose a lot of their meaning. Diakonia, when it's translated into service, that just sounds like charity, like a church is out there handing sandwiches out to homeless people or doing a clothing drive or a canned food drive or something like that. But diakonia, that word, it literally means to do such service in such a radical way that you're upending um, hierarchical, unequal systems. And again, this was meant to be the central aspect of a Jesus-centered community. Does that make sense? Were you gonna say something? I just, it just, like, it's amazing how it went from that <laughs> so quickly, like, they had a pope. Like, I, I guess, like, maybe those, that, what was ingrained in the culture, like, they just couldn't escape from it 
mentally to go from the time of Jesus to, I mean, when did the first Pope was, I mean, there were a, it's hard to tell historically because right. there were a bunch of them, and they used, they used the words um, interchangeably right. between pope and, and bishop and deacon, and so it's hard to tell. Yeah. so I mean, it just seems like so early in the church's history they moved away from that and into the hierarchical system. Well, and part of that is right after, so within Jesus' lifetime, uh, Jewish people were not persecuted. They actually enjoyed this exemption that Julius Caesar had given them, that they didn't have to participate within... Uh, the emperor cult. However, the zealot movement was happening at the same time. I mean, there were, there, it's, it's a complex system. And Jewish people in this time were extremely poor and still living under like the Roman boot. Um, but it's after Jesus' death when the Jewish revolt starts and when Nero loses his mind. And like, so then Jews and Christians from that point on all the way up until Constantine become a persecuted group. Um, I mean, they're being specifically targeted for their faith and, and, and killed. And so I, I think part of that is that when you take a group of persecuted people and then you suddenly offer them a power shift and say, hey, we're going to give you a lot of affluence and power and wealth. Or was the power shift what made them the target? Like if Rome was like, okay, we're, we're getting, we are, uh, we keep everybody in line with this power structure and then this new scene, you know, this new religion comes on the scene. And they're like, no, we're going to flip the power structure on its head. That would probably be enough to get them. Well, I think the main persecution happens because Jewish people revolt against Rome okay. outside of the Jesus movement. Okay. However, the next 300 years, the Jesus movement spreads so rapidly that Rome finally says, we can't stop this. We either need to co-opt it or be swallowed up by it. And so they co-opt it. And one of the first things Christians do when Christianity is declared the state religion of the Roman Empire is they turn around and start persecuting Jewish people. And so it's, and I think part of that is what happens when you suddenly give persecuted people a big reprieve and a lot of privilege? Do they take it or do they keep the movement going? So uh, things that I've been thinking about as you were talking about it, okay, so like if we want to be thinking about having this and the active service that we want to be doing as a church. Some, like, the questions that I've boiled down are like, okay, well, how do we elevate people that are at, like, the bottom of our society and, like, raise them up and, like, support them? But as we're doing that, then we're creating a new hierarchical system of raising, not, like, I think it's a good start to it to, like, okay, we need to elevate this group that has been uh, persecuted and oppressed for so long. But then doesn't that create another hierarchical system hundreds of years down the road that then, because we've been lifting them up, that... I mean, I'm sure it could. You see this in, like, um, countries where uh, revolutions happen, right? And then, absolutely, the, the persecuted become the persecutors. Yeah. Um, I mean, G the Jesus movement was a non... It was specifically nonviolent. It was meant to be nonviolent. And it was meant to be egalitarian. And so... There's a focus on the people at the bottom to try to create that equality, but I think the belief there is that, you know, uh, what, what's the statement? A, a nation is only as great as its poorest communities. Um, and so as, as people who are the most persecuted, the most impoverished are elevated, then the entire society becomes a better place. So I'm, I'm reminded of
change your life to good habits. And the way they break it down is that habits are sort of the, uh, the actions you take that affirm your identity. Mm. And so when you want to change your habits because you don't like something that you're doing, if you smoke or you don't work out or whatever, what you're really trying to say is like, I don't like the person who I am, I'm going to change it. So this guy takes a scientific approach to try to break down how do you change your habits and therefore change your identity. He's like, the first thing you need to do is say, like, I am this type of person. I am the type of person who gets up early and works out because I want to be that type. But you can't just say that. What you actually have to do is start taking very small, bite-sized, consistent steps because your habits then will reinforce the identity that you have. And at the end of the day, you will have made a thousand decisions. And if most of those decisions affirm the identity that you want, then you had a good day. If most of those decisions weren't affirming, when, when the choice came and you ate the cake instead of having the carrots or whatever, right? Then, okay, well that's a vote to the, the other type of person I want to be. So when you're talking about diachronia, you're, it's interesting the parallel between this scientific method that this guy is describing saying, your daily habits are gonna affirm what kind of person you want. And what the church was saying, what Jesus was saying 2000 years ago was, our daily habits need to be in the service of others, and that will eventually change your identity, according to what this guy is writing about, into a person who is a Jesus-centered, faithful person. So if your daily habits are those where, on an ongoing basis, you're making a thousand decisions a day, and those decisions are going to be driven by, hey, how, how is this decision going to be a service towards other-oriented decisions, then you're probably on the right track, and that's what a lot of this conversation yeah, I was thinking that while you were talking. That's a really good, I, I, it's a really great kind of parallel to make. And I would say that these three primary tasks really come down to a church's identity as a congregation. And, and I would even say that most of us growing up in church didn't even, weren't even presented with the idea that a church's identity could be centered in service. I think it was always that a church should be doing service. That's part of a church's identity, but it's not the central part. Um, but to, 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 to tell a lot of people today that a church's central component of their identity should be service, um, it's a big shift. But I think that could happen, too, if, if people are presented with this idea that that's what a church should be. Matt? I think it's also, um, I mean, I think out back like when we would do service projects, um, it feels like a lot of times the service projects were an excuse to That's, a, that's kind of a new, you're hitting me with a brick right there, actually, because that was my, 
growing up, we went to Ensenada every April and did service work out there. And I used to puff up and say, we're not like the evangelicals. We're not going out there to evangelize people. We're going out there just to do the work. But mm -hmm. we would do that. And, and meanwhile, we didn't do any service work within our own community. <laughs> Steve? It seems to me that often members of a congregation have really pretty strict limits on how they're going to serve one another. I remember some years ago, there was, you know, when we were having the after service meetings in the fireside room, and the issue of divorce came up. And, you know, there was a person there who felt like divorce was really a sin. And another person who was absolutely had, had divorced someone. And I guess I feel like, a, you know, if a congregation is going to serve the community, it seems to be, it would seem like you have to be able to serve yourselves when you're in trouble, when you're troubled spiritually or troubled uh, economically. And what I see and I've seen in churches over time is that that's one of the, that's the place that fails. And sometimes, you know, you look at a, a church of a church in South Chicago that's black, they're helping one another in all sorts of ways. They're there for each other emotionally. They're there when they need. But when I was attending a church in Berkeley that was huge, and we had a huge 200-member um, young adult group, when we suggested that one of the things we needed to be doing was talking with each other about issues of sex and drugs and uh, divorce, uh, the deacons of the church said, no, you're not going to do that here. So it seems to me that one of the failures is, the, the, the failure that leads to another failure is the failure to serve one another in the community. I, I agree, and, and like we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to the community section, because I want us to understand community as something that's informed by the service. And when you look at service within a, a church structure, um, especially when that service is not the central component of that church's identity, then it's almost like you don't really need to be concerned when there are people within that congregation who might be going through something. You don't respond to it as a community because you're not centered in being a service-oriented congregation. I wonder how comfortable someone in the congregation here who really needed to show up for food distribution, how comfortable they would be doing that. That's a good question, too. Yeah, Karen. Um, I was thinking back with um, Alberta, what you were talking about with trying to change what your identity is and trying to change habits. And it um, reminded me of when I work with a school counselor and one of the students that's having struggles in class, that she talks to me about like, what are the things that I would like to see from this student? Like, what are some of their challenges? And then she sets um, goals where we don't want to see it like, Eventually, we want to see maybe 100% improvement in an area, but that's unattainable at some point based on what the behavior is. So she'll say 50% of the time in class, are they blurting out less? They say, yes, they're at that point, and then the student feels successful because they're small, attainable goals as opposed to you need to stop blurting out completely, and it's 150 or 180 change from where you were and that you need to have these small steps along the way that, so you can build success and feel successful instead of just being like, here's this huge task, 
we have to change our identity and we have to change the, how we're structuring our services and how we behave every day and then like that seems too overwhelming so they just shut down like well that's a nice idea we can talk about it but like if we have something like by the next month we will try to do this specific thing or setting those attainable goals and that the small decisions reminded me of that yeah and not not to labor the point but i mean i'm i'm hearing you guys talk and, and for me like the takeaway from today's conversation like what i'm what i'm going to take away differently is just kind of hold this idea of diaconia present and like as i'm going around my daily life just the reminder that hey maybe being of service to others is the starting point for material change. If I have a one arbitrary decision, it doesn't have to be a trip to an international trip to build homes. It can be an arbitrary decision where, you know, maybe I have a particular strength in one thing and I can mentor somebody or I can help somebody open a door. Like small decisions will lead to those small incremental changes that you're describing. I agree with that. Um, I had I had a question. I didn't give you guys my questions today, but one of them was, um, you know, what, what does this look like on an individual level for us, and then what does this look like at a communal level? The communal level for me is always the Bethania community, and the individual level is definitely for you as individuals. I mean, I think um, I like I like really what Alberto brought to the table today of just like thinking of this as an identity shift. What does that look like for you as an individual to say if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in God or Jesus, if you would call yourself a, a Jesus follower, then what is this shift like for you to say my identity as a follower of Jesus needs to start first and foremost with diaconia, with service, not with belief, not with doctrine, not with dogma, not with saying the right thing, posting the right thing, but actual acts of service. What does that look like for you? Um, and then the, the communal level, I think the food distribution that we do is a phenomenal example. Um, I've been trying to get this church kind of activated uh, in, in more service for the community for a long time. Um, but I think I struggle with this idea. For me, this all exists in my intellect and doesn't always translate into my own physical actions for others. And so I talk about it all the time and I talk and I talk and I talk and... Um, as I was encountering this material to prepare for this three-week series, I was realizing I talk about this shit all the time. I don't do any of it that often. And I need to start doing it more. With the food distribution, you know, and I was saying we need to get more connected with the Latinx community here in the Valley. We need to get more connected with uh, the homeless population. We need all this stuff. When the pandemic hit, it wasn't even me. It was Linda and Donna who started the food. And it started small. It was, well, Let's contact the food bank. They'll, they'll declare us an emergency distribution site and they'll bring us the food that we give out. And all we need to do is receive it, bag it, and then give it out. And that's, that's it started right there like that. And then it's grown over the last two years to uh, supplementing it and doing all of this stuff. And now it's this massive event that happens. And it's the biggest, I, I would say it's the biggest service-oriented thing that any church in this valley does. Um, and, and I was wholly uninvolved in it. And at the same time, there's still so much of the church here that still needs that identity shift to start happening and realize that food distribution is the central thing we should be doing and 
what's the next thing we should be doing? I think you asked about how do you actually create that change? I mean, you know, we've talked about this a lot too. Like, how can a church get involved in the housing issues here in the Valley? Because housing is so, so expensive that it's a justice issue or um, food insecurity or uh, low wages, you know, uh, how we treat the Hispanic community, all of these things. So it's like, it started there, but it could just keep growing. And I think that happens with an identity shift, um, both for myself and for the congregation. So if I'm hearing right, we could start here and work outward when it comes to community and working outward. What you've done here with Bethania is amazing, um, but not all churches do what you've done here. And how do you get beyond the archival, the, the, the power structures, because a lot of churches have these power structures. Um, even in Jesus' day, there came a time when the church had their power structure built. Um, and does that act as a stopping point for community? I, do, does community have to rise above well, you keep it's saying you keep structure. saying you keep saying community, but really, what it comes down to is starting at service. And so, like the food distribution, for example, uh, the church started that, and it was so service centered. A community was developed because of the volunteers who kept coming and doing the actual act. But what it did was it introduced people in this congregation to systemic issues, which they had not been introduced to yet. So they didn't realize that people were starving, not because they weren't working enough, but because wages are low and cost of living is high. And so, so the service informs the community and it informs the proclamation. The proclamation is now there's a systemic issue here in the valley and we need to change it. So I'm going to talk about all of this stuff, the community and the proclamation, starting next week. Uh, but, but you know, your reach has been further than you might realize. Uh, you're just trying to make me feel better because I said that. But no, it's it was <laughs> Linda and it was Linda and Donna that did it, and thank God for them. Yeah. So I'm going to stop us there. I can hear the kids coming. <laughs>